Hi, I'm Jay John. Welcome to Facing the Canon. I'm delighted to welcome back my friend, Dr. Joe Boot, cultural apologist. Joe Boot, my friend, welcome back to Facing the Canon. Thanks for having me back again, John. Well, we, we've got a lot to talk about. It's good that we're doing two interviews. You're a cultural apologist. Mm -hmm. Okay, just explain again, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Well, let's take the second word, apologist, it comes from the Greek word in the New Testament, apologia or apologia, which means defense. Um, and so an apologist is one who seeks to defend or vindicate the Christian view of life. So I would define apologetics broadly as the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life. Cultural apologetics is the, I would say, the, the, the wide angle lens, not, the, not the, the narrow lens, the wide angle lens of the task of Christian apologetics. It's looking at worldviews, world and life views, and how they express themselves uh, in every area of culture. So a cultural apologist, apologist is somebody who's concerned with the vindication, the articulation and vindication of the Christian mind, uh, imagination and conscience for all cultural life, uh, helping Christians embody the Christian world and life view so that it's perceived as true, beautiful and full of meaning. One of several books that you've written is called Mission of God. And I can say that I've read this book and I took my time reading the book. And the reason I took my time reading the book, and I'm a, I'm a pretty fast reader, is because I really wanted to process it and try and ruminate on a lot of what you were saying. So it says here, a manifesto, I love that word. <laughs> it's a great word, isn't it? Of hope for society. Okay, so let's start. What is the mission of God? Mm -hmm. So the missio dei, the, 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 the mission of God, is actually um, a term that um, missiologists, those who study the whole idea of mission, will frequently use to describe what is it that God is doing in the world. So very often we as Christians think about the hope of heaven um, and that I'm saved, I'm, I'm converted, I've got new life in Christ and, and I want to walk with the Lord and perhaps I want to know God's, we all want to know God's blessing in our lives. But what is God doing? The, 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 the gospel of the kingdom is not about me, it's about Christ and it's about his rule and reign and the part that I am going to play in that. And so the mission of God is asking the question, what is God doing in the world in history? What's his purpose? What does it really mean to be a Christian who is on mission in terms of the mission of God? You could almost look at the Bible and say the Bible is a book by missionaries, for missionaries, about the mission. What is it that God is doing uh, in the world in terms of his kingdom? And so that's why the subtitle, A Manifesto of Hope, is uh, not a word we often associate with the gospel, manifesto, is it? We usually associate it with political life. Yes. Um, but it's the articulation of, you know, this is what God is, is, is doing in the world and this is how we participate in that, in this glorious vision of the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we often use th that expression, Joe, the rule and reign, mm -hmm. and we've used it, I've used it as mm -hmm. a preacher. Okay, what do we mean 
Mm. When we say the rule and the reign of God, what does that actually mean? Yeah. So it means more than the general idea of God's providence and sovereignty. We talk about, in Christian theology, we talk about the sovereignty of God. I'm sure you've talked about yes. the sovereignty of God. He's sovereign. You know, we've, we've just had the death of Queen Elizabeth II. We can understand what we mean by monarchy, by sovereignty. There's a general sovereignty that pretty much all Christians would sign off on and say, oh yes, God is, he, he rules and reigns. He's the, he's the creator. He's in charge. Um, but more narrowly, the rule and reign of God, the rule and reign of God is exercised through the man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, when we go to uh, the, the great um, manifesto of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission. Yes. We often misquote it, or at least we partially quote it, because when most people quote the Great, great Commission, they say, Jesus says, go into all the world, and preach the gospel, which is true, he does say that. But he says something before that. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Yes. Therefore, go. you can go. It would be supreme arrogance and hubris, wouldn't it, if it was just, we're gonna go and tell people on our own authority, teach them everything God has commanded, baptize them. Uh, baptize nations, of course, is what the scripture says there. It's not just talking about individuals, it's talking about peoples. Bring them into the discipleship, the discipline of the Lord Jesus. So the rule and reign of Christ in concrete terms, rather than just general statements about God's sovereignty, is the recognition of the fact that all authority, what does that leave out? Nothing. Nothing. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to the Lord Jesus. He is, uh, as Revelation 1.5 says, the ruler of the kings of the earth. When we look at Psalm 2 and we see the prophecy there about the Messiah, God is setting his king on Zion. And he says, even to the judges and rulers of the earth, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Psalm 110 give us, the Psalms actually give us this great manifesto of the rule and reign of the Messiah King. And uh, that rule and reign is a present reality. Christ is already now seated at the right hand of God the Father. So the rule and reign of Christ is rooted in his authority as the last Adam, the truly obedient yes. son, the new head of a new people, who he calls out the ecclesia to himself, and he sends them out as his ambassadors. And there's a word we can understand too. Again, has political connotations. That's why Paul used them. Um, an ambassador or a high commissioner, as we have as with, in, with Britain, is somebody who represents crown authority in another territory. Yes. And so, and is asserting the crown rights of the sovereign. And so we as Christians uh, are in our preaching of the gospel, in our obedience to his word, in our applying the faith in every area of life, we are asserting the crown rights of Jesus Christ the King, to whom belongs all authority all in authority. heaven and in earth. That is beautiful. Joe, great reminder and great that you're reinforcing it for us, that it's the authority of Jesus. And whatever we do, we're doing it in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Now, when we go to the doctor, Joe, we have a diagnosis before there's a remedy. Okay, so as you look at the world, 
Mm-hmm. What's your diagnosis? The, the issue now for us in, in the West, what we used to call Christendom, uh, is the radical de-Christianization of our culture is meaning this refusal to recognize Christ's redeeming work and his reconciling work and his lordship and his authority, whether it's over the family, issues of human identity, sanctity of life, law, education, is he king of our curriculum, and so on and so forth. All these different areas of life, we're tending to act as though Christ is not king, he's not lord, he has no authority, and he has no place. Um, And the temptation then for Christians is to say that Jesus is Lord between my ears. Yes. But beyond that, there's an increasing restriction on even our willingness to assert the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ. So that's my diagnosis. What's wrong is that we're in rebellion against God and we're in a precipitous decline in the West now because we are self-consciously rebelling against our better knowledge. when and how did we start rebelling? Mm-hmm. Why did we do that? Has it just, is that been very a slow process mm-hmm. or intentional? Yeah. Well, it has been a, a relatively slow process. And what tends to happen is these things have periods where they speed up. And I would say that probably you and I would recognize that the last 20 years or so in particular, there seems to have been an incredible speeding up. An acceleration. An acceleration of that. What happened then 20 years ago? What was it that provoked this change? Well, I think we we reached a tipping point. I think you could go back to probably the revolutionary moment in the West was the French Revolution when there was basically, it was the, well, the goddess of reason was enthroned in Notre Dame. And what, uh, what a Christian, a then professing Christian culture said as humanism, as uh, I mean, this comes of course out of the Renaissance on into the so-called enlightenment in the 17th and 18th century, is there's a sense that man can do without God. He can do without his revelation. And in our social and political life, we don't need to think about a covenant under God and that we as human beings occupy an office under God as a trust from God, we can think of ourselves as, as independent. Um, that uh, society and human culture and life is merely a social contract. It's just individual human beings making a contract and agreeing that we're just gonna live in this way and we can update and modify that contract anytime that we like. And that uh, movement, that revolutionary movement, and actually William Wilberforce, one of the founders of evangelicalism in this country, saw that coming. He said it's a brood of vipers has hatched there. He understood that it was yes. a philosophical, it wasn't just an event, it wasn't just a, a riot, it was a, it was a profound religious change. And what's happened is we've, the, the implications of that revolutionary movement for the last 250 years have been working themselves out. And a tipping point was World War II. Uh, because, you know, my parents' generation who were born either during or just after the war, we moved into the sexual and social revolution of the 1960s. And where we are today, 60 years later, is just the, we're on the tail end. We're still, it's, it's simply been the outgrowth of that movement. With World War One and World War Two in the West, there was a sense of a loss of confidence. There was a shattering of many things, economies, families, lives, fatherlessness because of the loss of husbands and fathers and, and in the was, home. And was that like blamed on God? To a degree, yes. 
there's a, and there, but there's a reciprocal relationship between, I mean, Mary Abishtat wrote a book called How the West Really Lost God. And she talks about how we tend to think that if people stop believing in God, they'll stop believing in the family. But she said, actually, uh, when the family collapses, because God reveals himself in familial terms as our father, as a husband to a bride, I mean, history in the Bible begins with a marriage. God defines his relationship yes. with Israel as a, as a jilted husband. The church is described as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, and history ends in a marriage. If you destroy marriage, and Karl Marx understood this, uh, he actually said, the secret to the holy family is the earthly family. Yes. And to destroy the former, you must destroy the latter in theory and in practice. So the, those two wars... So even he perceived that? He understood that. And he recognized that that was going to be the key in a sense, sense to hit to the Marxist vision of which is a kind of de-Christianized eschatology, a view of history where you can reach essentially a utopia, the kingdom of man, but without Jesus Christ, without God. And so the project since the French Revolution has steadily been humanistic, radically secular, in neo-pagan, we've really gone back to the resources of the ancient Greeks, the likes of Aristotle and Plato, and we've said we can build society, we can build a kingdom, the polis, we can build a kingdom of man and we don't need God, we don't need the God-man Jesus Christ, we don't need to submit to his authority, we don't need his word, and we don't need his lordship. And um, there, there are really today three reactions to that whole revolutionary move. It's really fast, uh, a bit slower, or let's go much, or let's go really slow. Mm in the so-called left and right debate of political life today, those were the seating positions in the French Revolution. The Bible isn't on the left or the right of the, of the French revolutionary movement. God's vision of human society is a community that recognizes his lordship, his authority, the, the, the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, as you know, John, was part of our, sure. his law, his royal law was part of our liturgy for centuries. The law of God hung on the on the walls of our crown courts. Yes, uh, there was a recognition. Even that, even the, the tabs on our the lawyers' garments representing the the, the, the two yes. tablets of the commandments. Our whole existence as a community was shaped by from the time of Alfred the Great and the first codification of English law, the word of God, the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as in uh, since that great revolutionary movement, which of course was part of what generated the problems of World War One and Two, um, which is, a, of course, a complex a discussion. The changes there, and specifically liberalism in the church in the late 19th century, on through the middle of the 20th century, the mainline churches decided, Jesus, was he really, was he really the son of God? Was he really raised from the dead? Is he really Lord? Do we really need to obey his word? I'm not sure about that. Maybe we can have the moral Jesus, the morality of Jesus, but we can secularize it. We can maintain uh, the values, but we don't need the Christ. Culture, which is, and, and maybe I should define that, culture is religion externalized. Yes. It's the public manifestation of the faith of the people. Everything that's going on around us in our culture is just manifesting. It's, it's expressing outwardly our most fundamental faith commitment. And, um, 
as we turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ and our commitment to him, it's no surprise that we're moving in the direction of death and darkness. That is the mark of God's judgment. Why can't we see that? Well, spiritual blindness is a, is a mystery in part, but also I would say that if you're asking a very concrete question about what is wrong in the, in the life of the church today, why, why aren't we seeing this, is that we are not sufficiently submitted to the word of God. Yes. We, we, we treat God's word like a smorgasbord, like it's pick and mix, yes. like it's a potpourri. Well, I like this bit and I like this bit. I'm not sure about that bit. We as evangelicals are very good at talking about in the formal abstract authority of God's word or its infallibility, but we don't really believe in its material authority. We don't believe in its application. Um, so, and you, know, you try it sometime. It's like, you know, you talk to somebody about the, a Christian about how we could bring God's word to bear on this cultural problem, this issue, that uh, political challenge, this issue in the law, that problem in education, in terms of a world and life view grounded in the scriptures, and people think, oh, no, 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 we've got to be neutral. Uh, uh, the, 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 there's, there's, some, there's some illusory world in which fundamental religious commitments don't apply. But the reality is our culture today is committed to um, the religion of humanism, of, of, of secularism. That's the faith that's shaping our culture. But as long as Christians and the pulpit refuses to say we are going to now apply Boldly, graciously, in love, because but love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, it rejoices with the truth. Absolutely. So we're going to apply the truth in love to all of these different areas because we truly believe that it's for the good of our neighbor, and as Jesus said it is, and it's for the prospering of God's people in history to see the mission of God fulfilled, which is that the earth would be filled with, with the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. God as the waters cover the sea. sea. Absolutely. Joe, so the reality is, Joe, to summarize, family has not, is not coming under the reign and rule of God. Education is not coming under the reign and rule of God. Um, politics. Politics is not coming. Government is not under the reign and rule of God. The church is not under the reign and rule of God. The world, is not under the reign and rule of God. Okay, so practically, mm -hmm. how are we going to apply mm -hmm. or see the reign and rule of God in any of those areas? Yeah, well, in Mission of God, I kind of lay out a number of different areas. I talk about history, I talk about a political life, I talk about law, um, I talk about crime and punishment, I talk about education, I talk about culture and its meaning, apologetics, evangelism, the calling of the church. I, I range over a multiplicity of is issues to begin to reflect on what would it really mean? What does it really mean to apply uh, the fullness of the Lordship of Jesus? Now, when you have articulated it the way that you just did, which was an excellent summary, um, the, the feeling that you get is, this is overwhelming. This yes. is too big. Yes. Uh, this project, first of all, some might feel well, it's a bit extreme, isn't it? I mean, you know, aren't we just supposed to snatch a few brands from the burning so that we can go to heaven? Well, actually, no. The kingdom of, he uh, of heaven comes down 
actually the, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven into the earth, right? The, the goal of the Christian life is resurrection. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the, the renewal of all of creation is tied to our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we have to first of all, uh, the first thing that Christians must do is grasp the full meaning of the gospel that it's about Christ's kingdom and rule and reign and the restoration, the renewal of all of creation, every aspect of life. That's step one. If we can get that, we'll begin to see the other pieces. But the, but when you look at it at that size, you think it's too big for me. So where yeah, it's you, overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And yes. you look at the problems of the world and the problems of the culture, problems in the family, 44% of kids at some point in their life growing up in a single parent house now in Britain. You think, how can we ever make a dent in this? Well, think about the 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost as they looked at the pagan colossus of the Greco-Roman world. It must have seemed utterly impenetrable. How could you even imagine that cultures, nations would submit themselves to the commands and the discipling of the Lord Jesus Christ? It must have seemed totally impossible. So let's take comfort in that, that 120 with the Holy Spirit is enough to transform the world. Uh, and that it's not us who are bringing in the kingdom. It's not me who's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's doing it by his Holy Spirit through his people. So we are agents of the kingdom. We're ambassadors for the kingdom, but it's Christ the King who is bringing in his kingdom. So we always recognize, must recognize the omnipotence of God and of the Holy Spirit in doing this work. Next, we have to say, well, what has God put in my hand? I'm, I'm, not the, I'm not the prime minister. I'm not a judge. I'm not a magistrate. Um, I'm, I'm not a, um, a teacher in this school, say, or whatever it may be, whoever you are. The, the, what we have to do is say to ourselves, okay, in my own life and in my own sphere of influence, uh, what am I to do? Now, this is not a, a calling for the institutional church to say, right, what we the only way to have this vision that we're talking about is for once again, like in the medieval world, for the church institute to run and rule over every area of life. And that was what we called the ecclesiastical, uh, medieval ecclesiastical culture that, 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 that was attempted under the sort of papal theocracy of the medieval period. Um, we, it's, it's not about inserting the church institute and its leaders into everything. It's about Christians in all of their er in every area of life saying, what does the word of God say and speak to me here? So if I am a teacher, let's say, it's not sufficient to say I am a teacher who is a Christian and there are some other teachers who are Christians. So let's have a prayer meeting at lunchtime once a week. That's good. But what does it mean as a teacher? to bring teaching itself, to bring curriculum itself under the Lordship of Christ. If I'm a lawyer, it's not enough to say, I'm a lawyer who's a Christian. Let's have a prayer meeting. Yes, do that, but develop a Christian view of law. Bring law itself and the practice of law under the Lordship of Christ. In politics, I might be a, an isolated politician. It's not enough to say, we've got some other Christian politicians, let's have a prayer meeting for politics. That's good, do that. But what does it mean to have a Christian view of politics that would surrender itself to the word of God? That's the difference. It's like uh, the, um, a, a double-decker bus, a, a simple image, a red London bus, two stories. 
what we've tended to do is say to ourselves, well, um, because of the reach of the secular religion, we've said that we as Christians should be concerned with the upper deck, that spiritual things, not so much the material cultural things, spiritual things. And up in the spiritual things is prayer, Bible reading, telling a few people about Jesus in personal evangelism. Fellowship. And fellowship. That's really, really important. This other stuff, law, politics, education, culture, yeah, I mean, we have to kind of be in there, but we do that in terms of common principles, but what that's not that important. That's all going to be burned up. What's really important are these spiritual things. That isn't, isn't a view of reality derived no, which from the Bible. Which is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the tip of the iceberg. And the question becomes, where's the driver of the bus? Yeah. He's always on the lower deck. So if we surrender the Lordship of Christ and his word in law, politics, education, the arts, business, economics, all these different areas of life, family and so forth, and say, well, we're just going to leave those to common, secular, neutral, they're not neutral, they're religious principles. And then we're shocked that the bus of culture drives off a cliff away from the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we look at it in as a big project, as a global thing, it feels overwhelming. So we have to start with, well, what about my own family first? Am I bringing my family, my children, under the Lordship of Christ and his word? Are my finances under the Lordship of Christ and his word? Do I tithe? Do I give Christ his tax? Uh, and, and then in my vocation, how am I thinking through the implications of a Christian world and life view so that whatever I'm doing, as Paul the Apostle said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, in other words, yeah. even in the most mundane things, do it, do it all for the glory, glory of God. God. Um, don't be conformed to this age, yeah, but, but be, be transformed by the renewal of your, your mind, mind so that you'll know what the will of God is. So that's really what this is about, is about the transformation of mind and heart to say, if, if, if the palm of my hand represents the heart, and these are the different aspects of my life, right? These are, these are all partial and, and the more peripheral elements, so my vocation, my family, whatever it may be. If the heart is transformed, then that should govern every single area of my life. What we've tended to say is, well, the heart's my emotions and I've got my personal relationship with Jesus and the fingers are somehow disconnected. But the palm, that's the root. So that should mean that the word of God is transforming us in the very root of our being to love God with heart, mind, soul, strength. And then the word of God is applied. Now that, John, I admit, is where the hard work comes in of, course. of cultural apologetics. Of course. I'm not saying that a lawyer tomorrow can just sit down and say, right, I know what a Christian view of the law is. Here it is. Yeah. That takes work. That's what the Ezra Institute is about. That's what my resources are about, is how do we develop a Christian world and life view that says no to the anti-Christian revolution of rebellion against God and says yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all of life. Joe, amen, amen, amen. I, I, I hear you and I, I believe that you're a prophetic voice for a time such as this. You've given us a lot to think about and we need to respond with a willing heart mm -hmm. to say, Lord, yes, your kingdom come, your will be done, reign and rule over me. Joe, it's been great to have you on Facing the Canon. Thank been you for joining us. It's my privilege to be here. Thank you for having me, John. The Mission of God, I encourage you, get a copy, dig into it. I'm sure you've been stimulated by that. Tap into 
Dr. Joe Boots resources, the Ezra Institute. This is what it does. It's trying to help us all, irrespective of the area of life we're in, to come under the reign and rule of God. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. The Easter story is the most important story ever told. Although it's very sad at times, it's also the happiest story. That's because it's true. The Easter Story by J. John is a simple, but not simplistic, retelling of the good news of Easter. Written for children and with beautiful illustrations, this book is a great way to share Easter this year. The Easter Story, available now from canonjjohn.com.